0: Okay, folks, we're reading from Mark chapter 10. Uh, As most of you will know, we're working our way through the gospel of Mark, and we've arrived at chapter 10, so we're going to read Mark chapter 10 from verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. I was named Arthur after an uncle that I never met. He was killed uh, just a couple of years before I was born at the end of the war. That left my auntie Ivy on her own to bring up two children. I knew my auntie, and she was a big part of my life for a long time. I knew her as a woman of faith, as a woman of commitment to the Lord, unwavering, unwavering, strong, determined, honest, upright. We went to see her when she was dying in the home that she was in, she was. Uh, she looked lovely. She was well looked after. She lay in this bed. There was like a cot. The, the, the side was up. And I didn't know if she was asleep or not. So I tried to be as quiet as I could. I leant over and just whispered, Auntie, it's Arthur. And the most amazing smile came on her face. And... She just said these words, like my Arthur, he was lovely. That was the last conversation we had. And I know there are more dramatic and maybe you know even more pertinent examples of love. But for me, it showed the capacity of the human heart to love, which seems immeasurable. That was over 50 years. She'd lived over 50 years. And she remembered with such love. But the fact that the human heart can love so much means the human heart also has the capacity to hurt and to suffer. And And that makes this subject, that makes these verses that we've read a difficult subject to deal with. It's also a very complex subject. Issue. There's as many different scenarios as there are people involved. And there'll be very few people in this room at the moment not affected in some way, either directly or through friends or family that have experienced the difficulties that we are looking at and dealing with today. And it calls for more than just clear answers, certainty and strong opinions. I remember as a young man, Listening to two guys who were leaders, discussing this subject, arguing over this subject. And I remember thinking how much they seemed to know and how clever they seemed to be. And, but I remember thinking, well, there's something not right here. It seemed as if the main point was to win an argument over the subject. And I was a young guy. I didn't understand. I didn't know anything, really but it just didn't seem right to me. A right spirit, a right attitude is surely what's called for. But it points to an even greater and more relevant issue, which is where I would like to arrive, if at all possible. If your lunch is in the oven, I hope you put it on low. Uh, The reason I'd like to get to this other point at the end is because you can't consider the subject of divorce without thinking about marriage. And you can't think about marriage properly without encountering Christ and his bride, the church. But our approach to this subject will also show our view of the Bible. Where do we look for answers? Where do we look for guidance in life? We believe that God has spoken. We believe that God has revealed his will to us in the Bible. I forgot to ask whether we had. Yeah, okay. Uh, if we could show. What do I do with that? I press that, that one. Excellent. Thank you very much. Okay. So, where do you look for guidance? Yeah. Okay. Um, we believe that God has spoken. We believe that He has revealed His will. He's told us. What he wants us to know. He's told us how he wants us to live. And earlier we sang a lovely song. And it's, it is, I love the song. I love it. But it's one thing to sing a song with nice music in, in good company, isn't it? And we were singing, I will live my life according to your ways. Or the line was something like that. I will live in all of your ways. Yeah? Well, his ways are revealed to us in the Bible. This is a prayer I've mentioned before, and I'll probably mention it again if I'm ever asked to preach again after this. I will probably mention it again because it's amazing. It's a prayer for revival. May God be gracious to us. Start praying this with me. I don't mean now. I mean, start praying it. May God be gracious to us. May he bless us. May he make his face shine on us. Those are great things to pray. But there's a reason. So that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. I have to be honest with you. When I prayed this as a prayer for revival, even as I was praying it, I was struggling with the line, so that your ways may be known on earth. I struggled with that. All the others that I could pray with passion, be gracious to us, bless us, make your face shine upon us. We want salvation. We want to see people from every nation, every tongue, every language brought to you. But I was also praying so that your ways may be known on earth. And I'm thinking, am well, the Bible, God's ways, I'm praying that people will come and say, I've got a decision to make, I've got this problem, what does the Bible say? That's, that takes some faith, doesn't it? to pray that prayer. See, the Bible isn't just for our comfort. It isn't just to be used devotionally during the day. It's for our instruction on how to live. And we may face ridicule, even abuse. We may be tempted like politicians to abandon what the Bible says to fit in, but we do so at our spiritual peril. Having said that, what happens when the answer doesn't seem clear cut, and there are strong different, differing views, which there are on this subject. What do we do then? Some questions on this passage to help us as we move along. First of all, why did the Pharisees ask this question? Why did they ask this question? Well, Mark tells us they were testing him, they, they didn't come for guidance. They didn't come because this was a tricky problem and they wanted to live right. They came to test him. We're told by those who know these things, they were were in the territory of Herod. Herod was the man who had put John the Baptist in prison and eventually had his head cut off for this very issue. This very issue of when can you divorce, when can you remarry? And they were trying as usual to trap Jesus, to get him into trouble either with the people are with the authorities. That's why they asked him. Why did Jesus ask, what did Moses command? Well, because we've seen the first thing to do when we have a question is to ask, what has God said about it? And we do that by looking at what the Bible teaches. And they were referring to the Bible. They were referring to this passage in Deuteronomy. This is what Moses said. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Jesus said, what did Moses command you? It seems reasonable in one way. They went to a passage in the Bible written by Moses. It was on the subject. But was, and that seems a reasonable place to go, but as we'll see... Because of the state of our hearts, we can use the Bible, which is what they were doing, to suit our own ends. In the prevailing culture of the time when Moses wrote these words, divorce and remarriage were common. And it was just a matter of choice. There was no thought behind it. You get married, you find something you don't like in your partner, you divorce, you try again. You even go back to the first one and and try that again as we have seen happen over and over again with celebrities that have lived this kind of lifestyle. And God's people were behaving in the same way. They were living their lives and deciding on marriage in the same way as the people around them. And so Moses warns them against this light view of marriage and easy divorce. The Pharisees were now using this passage to justify their light view of marriage. And easy divorce. And this is perhaps shown by another passage where Jesus says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus said at the beginning of that, It has been said. Now, he wasn't referring to this passage. He wasn't saying Moses had said this. What he's saying was that people are saying, based on the Bible, that this is how it is. People are saying that you can just do this. He was correcting a misinterpretation of this passage. They were using Moses to justify the way they wanted to live their lives. They said, well, Moses said, if we don't like a person, the woman we've married for any reason, uh, we can give her a certificate of divorce and we can marry someone else. So there you are, they thought. There we are, their view of marriage endorsed by Moses. But that passage in Deuteronomy doesn't do that at all. Moses didn't command people to divorce. It didn't institute divorce. All it did was recognize, Moses recognized, this is what is happening. This is what is going on at the moment. And he warned them against one particular aspect of this situation. The Deuteronomy 24 passage, that's all it does. It warns against one particular consequences. And that consequence was that if you get married... And if you divorce, then think very carefully about getting married again. Because if you do, you can't go back to the original person because God would find that detestable. That was the one issue that was being dealt with in that passage in Deuteronomy. So, that was why um, they referred to Deuteronomy 24. They thought that it backed up their view. But it didn't. Why did Jesus say Moses had allowed this? Well, he said, it was because of your hard hearts that Moses wrote you this law. So when Moses wrote this, when he said, this is what's going on. He didn't say, this is what you should be doing. He said, this is what's going on. People are marrying. People are divorcing, giving a certificate of divorce and then marrying someone else. Be careful, you can't go back to the other person if you do that. But Jesus said, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. So what Moses did was, he uh, he recognized what was going on and he didn't put a stop to it, but he just warned about a possible consequence. That's what he did. The reason he didn't put a stop to it was because their hearts were hard. Life was being lived in that way, and God allowed that to go on, but warned about one possible consequence of it. But the problem was, their hearts were hard. That's why they were in this mess, because their hearts were hard. And that's something we all need to come to terms with. Our problems do not begin... With our behaviour, they go much deeper than our behaviour and the decisions that we make. Our problems go to our hearts, to the very centre of who we are. The Pharisees were experts on outward behaviour. And they were able, at times, to legitimise bad behaviour, even with the Scripture. That's what they were doing. We can use scripture, we can use our traditions, we can use the way we see things to hide the state of our hearts. And that's what they were doing. Why do we have divorce? Why do we have relationship problems of any kind? Why do we have envy? Why do we have deceit? Why do we have lust and anger? Why do we have any of these problems? It's because of The state of our hearts. That's what the Bible tells us. And perhaps there's no clearer that there are lots of other descriptions, but perhaps there's no clearer one than this one. This is Paul in Ephesians. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking... They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. The state of our hearts. Right through the Bible, the state of our hearts outside of Christ and outside of the influence of the Holy Spirit is described in this way. But as I say, perhaps no more clearer description than this one. And one writer explains it in this way. We've got the mind spoken about. We've got the understanding spoken about. We've got the heart spoken about. And he describes the mind as the thinking part of us. Some translations use the word thinking. So we've got the thinking part of us, which looks around, the thinking part looks around to find things for the heart, the inner being, to use in life. Yeah? So we look around and we think about things. Yeah, Paul says our thinking outside of Christ is futile. It's futile. So as we look around and think about what things we can take from life to use and live by and live for, they are things we choose or look at of no eternal value. They are just futile things. That's the way our mind works. And then our understanding... This writer says, guides the choice of the things that the mind has seen. Yeah? So the mind looks around at all these things, but it's futile. Then the understanding chooses some futile things to pass on to the the heart. The understanding is darkened. Our understanding is darkened as we choose what things from life we have seen that we might want to use. And then the heart that receives those things in order to live by them and put them into practice, the very center from where we live, that, says Paul, is hardened. That is our state outside of Christ. And that is why we need more than this right now. We need more than a pulpit and a Bible and a preacher. We need more than fellowship together We need more than good songs and we need more than breaking bread. We need more than those things. Those things are good most weeks. Those things are good. Yeah, we might be struggling this week. Most weeks those things are good. But we need more because of the state of our mind, our understanding and our heart. If we are outside of Christ, we need to be born again. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need new insight. We need new understanding. We need new desires. We need a new heart. We need more than just this. When we hear the gospel and faith comes and we're born again, a new principle and a new power is at work within us. We are changed. The truth is, however, the old is not completely gone, which is why as believers, we still struggle. We still struggle even as believers, even though we've been changed, even though we've got this new mind, this new heart, this new understanding, we still struggle. And this writer describes that in these three three ways. The third one, as I was reading these, I, I confess, I have to confess, I actually burst out laughing at the third one, because it's like three things, and I'm saying, you got me there, you got me there, and then number three. Okay, this is true of us all, those of you that know Christ today, those of you that are believers. This is what he says, even after this experience. This is what we suffer from, forgive the old-fashioned language. Instability in holy duties. Do you struggle with that? Instability in holy duties. We try to pray, and we think, oh, I've just got to do, yeah, you know, they've got to do that, haven't I? We start praying, and oh, I'm worried about that, and what about this? And Instability, yeah, in holy duties. You got me there. Inclination to conformity with a vain world. Yeah? Inclination to conformity with a vain world. An inclination to think like other people think. To do things the way other people do things. To react the way other people react. Still there. And the third one. Fond and foolish imaginations that lead to self-exaltation and satisfaction. Nobody else but me suffers from that one. Yeah, yeah. Those we, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be changed. We need God's life and power within us, something that only he can do. But even when that happens, these issues are still there, which is why we need each other, which is why we need fellowship, which is why we need prayer. Jesus said, The reason Moses left you with that possibility of divorce and issuing a certificate was because your hearts are hard. It's the only way you could live. It's the only way you could live. But be careful because you can't just do what you want, get divorced, remarried, don't think you can go back to the original person. That's what that passage was about. So the next question is, is it meant to be different now? And the answer's got to be yes, it is meant to be different now. And we are meant to live different lives now with the help and power of the Holy Spirit. So, my next question on the passage is why did Jesus go to, to the Genesis passages, which he did? He said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man. So they went. To the passage that suited their ends, saying what Moses had allowed, they didn't go to the passage that talked about what Jesus asked, which was, "What did Moses command? Not what did He permit, but what did He command? And this is where Jesus goes. Um, Genesis 1:27 and 2:24 are the passages that he quotes. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, he created them. And then 2.24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So Jesus takes them to God's original intention. Not to what Moses allowed because of their hard hearts and the way they were living, but to what God's original intention was. Questions about divorce can't be answered without knowing what God intended marriage to be. So as we think about this passage in Mark, and as we think about these quotes of Jesus that he used concerning God's original intention for marriage, we need to think about marriage itself. I've just got a list of statements for you. That I've gathered from certain writers. Some of them are direct quotes, some of them are not. But I'm just going to read through them for the sake of time, yeah? Well, what is marriage meant to be? It's not something that people thought up somewhere along the way in human history to sort out various responsibilities and care for children. And therefore, it can be changed, redefined and dealt with and set aside just as we wish, yeah? So it's not something that evolved, which we can then just alter because we thought, we dreamt it up. God designed marriage as the foundational element of all human society. Before there was a church, a school, a business instituted, God formally instituted marriage by declaring a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So this is, and this is not just about believers or the church. It's about the whole of humanity, no matter what the cultural differences are. Jesus made it clear that marriage will not be done away with until the future life, until the life to come. God has not only instituted marriage, but he's revealed his will in the Bible. And therefore, getting married, divorced, or remarried can only happen without sinning if we follow his word. It's not up to private individuals or the state to decide these matters, but the church, as the scriptures are expounded and applied. Because marriage is a foundational institution, society and the church itself is weakened when what God says is disregarded. And society and the church are under attack when the institution of marriage is under attack. Marriage is not, as I understand the Roman Catholic Church teaches, Fundamentally there to provide for the propagation of the human race. While marriage is the right place for this to happen, it's not its main feature. Neither is marriage the same thing as sexual union. Sexual relations do not constitute marriage. Marriage is bigger than and distinct from, although inclusive of, the obligation for sexual union. Genesis 2 verse 18 reveals what marriage is meant to be about. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So, marriage was instituted to solve the problem of loneliness. Marriage was established because Adam was alone, and that makes companionship the very essence of marriage. That's what marriage is about. It's about companionship. It's so that Adam would not be alone. That's why a woman was created and that's why marriage was instituted. Now, the single life is also spoken of and honoured in the Bible in certain circumstances, but we're dealing with divorce and therefore trying to understand marriage. Two other scriptures that sort of um, give a key to a really good definition of what marriage is about. In in this, the context doesn't really matter in this. It's just the phrase that's used about marriage in these two passages. So in Proverbs, it talks about someone who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. And in Malachi, you ask why? Malachi is saying, it is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So the best description of marriage that I've come across, and I personally think it's an absolutely beautiful description of marriage, is that it is a covenant of companionship. It's about companionship, sexual relations clearly involved, It's there for bringing up children, but the main thing is the companionship and the covenant, the agreement that is made. And when Adam was presented with Eve, it wasn't just somebody to help him. It was somebody who completed him as his other half, not his better half, as we sometimes jokingly say, and certainly not his lesser half, but his other half. Because he wasn't complete until he was united to Eve. The thing that makes marriage so unique among all other relationships, however, is none of these things, as important as they are. The thing that sets it apart is that God chose marriage to signify the relationship between his son and his bride, the church. So back to the passage in Mark then. What did Jesus mean by so they are no longer two, but one. That's what he said when he quoted the Genesis passage. He's clearly commenting on what he's just quoted from Genesis 2.24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. This one flesh does not just refer to sexual union. It means really to become one flesh person. Like we use the word everybody, and we're not talking about bodies, are we? When we say everybody here, we're talking about people, really. We mean every person here. So the flesh there doesn't, it's not talking just about flesh. It's talking about becoming one person. God's revealed goal for a husband and wife is to become one in all areas of their relationship. That means, and includes intellectually, emotionally, Physically. They're still two, clearly, but they're also one. Yeah? They're they're still two, but they're also one. It's a mystery. Um, And the Bible presents it in that way. And the nakedness that's mentioned in Genesis when Adam and Eve um, are spoken about, without feeling shame, that represents the openness without fear or shame in this covenant of companionship. That is what marriage is meant to be. So what did Jesus mean when he said, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Those are Jesus' words. Becoming one flesh is at the heart of what marriage is and God himself performs it. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's God who performs that one flesh union. That those are gods in, in verse 20. In, um, we've not got that long. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. There are those who think, therefore, that because that is true, because it's God who does the joining together, that therefore men can't break it. But what Jesus said was, uh, in the passage that we looked at, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. He didn't say we can't. He said we shouldn't. As it's God who joins together, we need to be very careful about breaking apart what he has joined together. But out there, there's no concern, is there? Out there, there's no real thought about it. There's hurt, there's anger, there's disappointment, there's all the other stuff. But there's no real difficulty about marriage, breaking the marriage and remarriage. But there should be, if we're going to follow what the Bible teaches. As believers, we should be different. So the disciples are on their own with Jesus, uh, and they ask him once more about this. Matthew records the same incident, and he has the disciples saying, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. That's what the disciples thought after listening to Jesus. It's better not to be married. The vision that Jesus had of marriage was so different to theirs based on the culture around them, based on what was going on around them, their view of marriage as they listened to Jesus was, better not to get married then. That's how different it was. Where does this leave us on divorce and remarriage then? Where does all that leave us? The difficult truth is that there is more than one Bible-based answer to that question. And I think I said it at the beginning... That can be the problem. That's the difficult. Devout biblical scholars disagree. There are big names and big books that take different views on what the Bible says. While most seem to agree that divorce is allowed in some circumstances, they disagree on remarriage following divorce. Some say that divorce and remarriage are biblically permitted when a partner is adulterous or when a partner deserts willfully and there is no remedy to that uh, separation. Others say that while divorce may at times be unavoidable, all remarriage while the partners are living is wrong. That's what some people say and these are genuine Bible-believing people who who want to live by the scriptures and that lack of agreement is represented through history as well in the Some of the confessions uh, that Christians have written. Some of the relevant scriptures. Forgive me. Um, As you can see, I'm not used to this. There we are. So 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11. To the married, I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. In context, it's clear that Paul is talking about married believers. And what he's saying is that married believers should not get divorced, but if they do get divorced, they should remain unmarried so that the possibility of reconciliation is there. And then he deals with the situation where there may be a believer married to an unbeliever. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So the instruction there is to a couple where one is a believer and one is not. They should try to maintain that relationship. But if the unbelieving partner doesn't want to maintain that relationship, then the believer should allow that marriage to end. And there are those who... I um, think that that can be applied to uh, believing couples as well, if, where desertion is concerned. I t- uh, Matthew 19, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, uh, this is Jesus speaking, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. So the one ground for divorce of believers is sexual sin. But that's not inevitable. It's not saying you must divorce there is the possibility of forgiveness and reconciliation. And then there are others who use this principle in Matthew 18, which is the principle for dealing with problems uh, between believers for settling disputes. Uh, Go to the person, speak to them. If they won't listen to you, take someone else. If they won't listen to you, then take it to the church. And then eventually the church Uh, treats the person as an unbeliever. And there are those who uh, are happy to use that in order to deal with situations where two believers are separated and one of them refuses to be reconciled. Uh, There are those who are happy to use that scripture. And clearly... If one partner dies, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. So I'm not giving you clear answers. I'm explaining to you what the issues are and what the different opinions are. The point for me is that sin complicates life in a way that was not God's intention. Because there are different views, we can't just join the world in saying anything goes. We can't just say this is so complicated, this is so difficult, we'll just do what seems right. What we have to do is think and study and seek guidance. This is why we have leaders. This is why the church... Community is important because we need to listen and to submit and to try and understand and work things out together based on our understanding of the Scriptures. And if we decide that we have got it wrong at some point, then we can be forgiven and we can put right what we can. People who come to know the Lord with a complicated history have a new start. Have a new beginning when they come to know the Lord. And I can't see any reason why that shouldn't be true for believers as well, who recognize that they're wrong, repent, and can start again. I I started off by saying where I wanted to end, and I'm going to end there, even though the time's gone, and even though I can see you've clearly had enough. But I want to <laughs> I want to finish with. Something that I've wanted to share for months, actually. I've had, this, I've had this piece of paper with it written on in my pocket. And, you know, you must feel this. Many of you want to share things. You must feel And Ian's constantly saying to us, who's got something to bring? Who's got something to share? You know. I've had this in my pocket. And you just think, is it right? Is it the appropriate time? I thought today might be. That verse at the top is from the Song of Solomon. And the Song of Solomon by many people is seen as uh, the bride and her lover. It's seen as a representation of Christ and the church of believers and Christ. And she is set, she's saying to her lover, set me as a seal upon your heart As a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. So the young woman here is feeling anxious. Yeah, that's what that last bit is about. Uh, Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. So she's feeling anxious. She's feeling jealous of maybe, is this, is this love real? Is, this, is he really for me? Is he really mine? Is he really going to be with me? And she's saying, set me as a seal, as a seal, confirmation on your heart and on your arm. One writer says this about it, the heart notes his most dear inward and tender affection. His arm notes his protecting and preserving care and power. And by setting her as a seal upon his heart and arm, she would have a firmly sealed interest, both in his love and power. This she would have firmly sealed and ratified. Yeah? She's saying, I need to know that your heart is for me. I need to know that your arm, your power, your protection Is with me. I need to know it. I need it sealing. I need it confirming. Relationships meant to be permanent get broken and complicated because of our fallenness. What of our relationship to Christ? How secure is that? Just wanted to end by asking you did you know that you can be sure? Did you know that you can have The permanence, the certainty of the love of Christ and the protection of Christ confirmed and made sure because you can. Thank you for listening.
1: We're going to to begin to bring our service to a close, but this is how we're going to do it. I think that uh, marriage is, and and this is just such an obvious truth, marriage is the place or relationships are the place where you get battered and bruised the most, it's the place where you learn to persevere the most, it's the place where you learn to ask God for help the most, it's the place where you hope the most, it's the place where you love the longest. As we were praying before the service began this morning, recognising the passage that Arthur would be tackling, recognising that amongst us all, we are a fellowship of people who mess up and have been messed up. Some of us in this room have been really damaged by the actions of other people, and some of us in this room have damaged other people by our actions. But for all of us in this room, there is forgiveness and hope. For some of us in the room, it's not about... (laughs) Sometimes there's an old joke about, have you ever thought of divorcing him? No, never divorce, just murder. (laughs) For some of us in the room, it's not about really divorce. It's about actually how we're going to get through to the end of this week together. One of the things I want to do is invite people who would want to be prayed for for blessing on their marriage, on their relationships. That Actually all of their marriage, their relationships would come under the Lordship of Jesus that actually you would be able to be prayed for. And that will happen on this side. And on this side of the room I think there will be nobody in the room who is not concerned about someone else's marriage. For some of you, it'll be your kids, or for your friends, or for people who are really close to you. But you carry the weight of a concern for other people's relationship. Because you you can see hardness of heart. (laughs) You can see the possibility that it'll break. And I'm going to invite, as we come to the end of the service, it's going to be, I think the technical term for this is a soft finish, just in case you're wondering what's going to happen next. What we're going to do is we're going to invite, if if you're concerned about others, just come and stand and sit around here. I'm going to pray for the folks you're concerned about. If you're longing for the blessing of God on your own relationship, it may not because it's in a bad state it may because it's actually in a good state you just want the blessing of God, come and stand here the saviour who did not marry was the biggest blessing to those people who were and your marital state does not account for, doesn't matter when you pray for others because we follow a saviour who didn't marry but we pray for those who are does that make sense? If you want to get, just pray for a blessing on your marriage or on your relationship, you just want it to bring it all under the Lordship of Jesus, come and stand here. And actually, if uh, you're concerned about others, then come and stand over here and we'll pray with you and for you. And there'll be other people who will come and join us in pray. We'll sing something that's suitable as we do that. We'll also just have an opportunity to give, as a final act of worship together, our offering together and uh, the baskets will, will just pass around. So perhaps as Ian begins to lead us, let me pray first as Ian's beginning. Let me pray. And then as that time comes, depending on how many people want to respond, then we'll know when we're done. But if you need to slip away, then please go. Father God, thank you that you did not leave us floundering around without wisdom about some of the basic relationships that matter the most to us. Lord, we want to pray for those of us who are married. We want to pray that you'd guard our hearts against hardness. That Lord, our hearts would be made soft by your spirit, and that our love would be constant. We pray for us who've been messed about by other people and hurt. Lord, we pray for your healing and we pray for a new beginning. Lord, I want to pray for those of us who've messed other people around and we've sinned against others. Lord, would you forgive us? We say it not lightly or glibly, but we ask that through the cross of Jesus, forgiveness might be ours and that we would know that, no condemnation of Christ. Lord, we want to pray for those of us who are in relationships, that we're in marriages, those of us who are moving towards marriage, Lord, we want to pray for your blessing, that we want to pray that our relationship would come under the Lordship of Jesus. We want to pray that you would be there for us. Lord, we want to pray for those that we are most concerned about those relationships that we are anxious about for some of us it might be in our family for our friends for the folks that we know Lord we want to pray for their marriages that they would be strong Lord may your grace go ahead of us may we walk in a way that's worthy of you may we walk in a way that brings joy may we walk in a way say something about the grace and goodness of our God. We ask it in your name, Lord. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand.